There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael Ryder. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. So yesterday, in the Rex Ewerman case, he had his second appearance in front of uh, the magistrate, the court, uh, and people, for whatever reason, there was so much hype about it, that what was going to go on at this court appearance uh, and Mr. Human, Rex Human, has been charged with killing three women and burying their bodies, of course, near Gilgo Beach, in a case that, up until very recently, was open for nearly 13 years. Uh, in court yesterday was about 140 spectators. Some were relatives of those who were killed. Others were members of the press who had reported on Mr. Human, but never had seen him in person. Uh, Little had been known about this hearing in Suffolk County Court in Riverhead early Tuesday morning. It was uh, referred to merely as a conference in court records, and in most cases, it would have been a routine appearance. Yet roughly 250 reporters, producers, photojournalists, and videographers waited for hours to watch the eight-minute proceeding. It was the second time Rex Humerman, a 59-year-old architectural consultant in Manhattan, who, of course, has denied the charges and pled not guilty uh, since he was arrested on July 13th. Prosecutors on Tuesday said they gave Mr. Ewerman's lawyer, Michael Brown, uh, four two-terabyte hard drives that contained 2,500 pages of documents and photographs and hundreds of hours of video collected by the police and prosecutors. At a news conference after the proceeding, which we'll watch a little bit of later, Suffolk County District Attorney Raymond Tierney said the charges in the indictment are just allegations, and this evidence is the first step in the process of proving those allegations. With me today, and joining me, uh, and I love when he joins me because we call him the man of reason, uh, former NYPD sergeant, a professor of criminal justice, attorney. Welcome to the show, Mike Geary. Welcome, Mike. Billy, thank you for having me on. Good to see you. You know, Mike, uh, yesterday, you know, some people, of course, the people that want sensationalism, the people that think every day is going to be an exciting day. Some people compared yesterday uh, to be a nothing burger. I hate that expression, by the way. But some people said it's a nothing burger. And I think it was more than nothing. You want to sort of uh, update our audience on what it was yesterday, Okay, Billy. Yeah, the the first appearance is when he uh, was arrested and he and he pled, and that was interesting. And it was a short, you know, do you how do you plead guilty or not guilty? He consulted his attorney. He pled, you know, not guilty. He's remanded to the Suffolk County, um, you know, Department of Corrections, the county sheriff's office. Yesterday's uh, uh, appearance really was just uh, a little conference between the judge, you know, public conference between the judge, the the district attorney Tierney and uh, Mr. Hurman and his attorney. And it's the very, very beginning of the discovery process. He had uh, 2,500 pages worth of documents, autopsy reports, DNA reports, uh, video of him um, uh, from surveillance, you know, uh, and, uh, and some, whatever, photographs and, and you know, uh, things like that from the medical examiner's office. Uh, they'll, they will probably produce more again and give it to the uh, the prosecution when he appears for his next court date, which is scheduled for I think September twenty second, something like twenty uh, seventh. Uh, I think it's twenty seventh, Mike. Yeah. yeah. So that'll be the next thing. Now these are not exciting in any way. He's not going to speak, or or you know, it's all about the two attorneys and the judge, and the judge making sure that the material is turned over and uh, everybody's you know acting above board. But he's there. He's entitled to be there. And he just is just going to sit there like 
Brian Kohlberger, uh, he's right. Whenever they go to court, you see he's just sitting there. He's not speaking to the judge. He's whispering his attorney's ear and the attorneys are talking to each other and to the judge. And uh, it's the beginning of the discovery process. There's a lot of discovery material that he, the district attorney is going to turn over. And there's a lot of discovery material that maybe they don't even have yet themselves because they're still processing it, still analyzing it, especially all the uh, work that they did at the house. That will come again, maybe in late September and in the future. So it's, it's I don't like the term nothing burger because it is very significant, but it's not exciting. You know, Mike, I, I don't like that expression either. But one of the things I think it was a good uh, thing that yesterday that the public got to see in a court of law and many people that weren't in the court of law yesterday got to see a photograph of him. And he is an extremely imposing figure. There's a picture of him is a little blurry of when he was arrested. And you could see that he just dwarfs the detectives, which I would imagine, you know, most cops are pretty good size, uh, but he just dwarfs them. He's so much bigger than than any detective that worked on this case. And, you know, six foot five, six foot six, whatever you want to believe, 280 to 300 pounds. That's an imposing figure, a scary figure. And, you know, apparently yesterday uh, I spoke to Melanie Little, uh, who's a frequent guest on this show. And she said when he walked into the courtroom, she did feel the presence of evil in that courtroom. And of course, when you look at what he's being charged with, how could you not think that, you know, uh, the Gilgo Beach serial killings after a decade long investigation into multiple murders believed to have been carried out by a serial killer on Long Island, a suspect has been arrested. And of course, that is Rex Ewerman, male white, 59 of Massapequa Park, Long Island, an architect, a father of uh, two grown Adults, actually, uh, married at the time of this. His wife has since filed for divorce. Um, this case began in 2010 with the retrieval of four female bodies on a desolate stretch of Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach. It was only the first of uh, several uh, discoveries of bodies at that location. And all the remains of nine women, a man, and a toddler were found in that area. Uh, from the beginning, the four women whose bodies were first retrieved were reduced to their profession as prostitutes. That now seems to have changed. Well, you know, I that was coming from the New York Times. Many people make it such an issue that they were listed as uh, sex workers. However, Mike, and you know, you worked these kind of cases before. In police jargon, in police vernacular, in police the way they investigate, that is an important component of this because it shows MO, shows modus operandi. Why is this potential serial killer, which they didn't know initially, they uh, thought it was a serial killer, why is he targeting sex workers? Is there a commonality? Is there a connection? And it turned out, yes. Yes, there was a connection. And the connection, of course, we found out were these burner phones. And the fact that he was calling these sex workers utilizing these burner phones. And if you didn't keep an open mind and realize the possibility that this was a pattern, a pattern, and related to modus operandi method of operation. And then later on, as the investigation uh, enhanced, became bigger, we realized there was also something called a signature. And we'll get into that later, but there is no reason for public or anyone to get upset that this, they were listed as sex workers. That is an important investigative component for the investigation of this case. Mike. Billy, absolutely it's very important because it goes to modus operandi, like you said. Who is this suspected serial killer who at the time when they formed the task force, they didn't know who it was and they did a great job. But you have to get into the head of the serial killer. Who is he targeting? Do these 
uh, four, uh, they found four of them and he's been charged with three, you know, these four girls, what do they have in common? You know, it's probably serial killers that I have heard about, like Joel Rifkin and, you know, BTK, um, you know, they're not always, they're not just targets of opportunity, like a random person they see uh, along the side of the road. They're targeting a particular type of person who's the most vulnerable. BTK would look for uh, older women and women who uh, seem like they weren't uh, living with a man or, or a family, you know, that sort of thing. You're always looking for who can I kill easiest? Who's the easiest target? And to identify them as prostitutes, that's not a pejorative in this kind of case at all. Uh, police are very, very sympathetic because they're the ones who are taking the brunt of many of these serial killers because serial killers believe that rightly quite often that these are the most vulnerable uh, ladies that there are if you want to kill a, a lady. If you're into killing women, those are the ones that are most likely to you're be successful with because especially in the evening, there's not a lot of people around. Uh, if they're working by themselves, they don't have any sort of network. They don't maybe don't have family looking for them. Their family might not even know where they're living. Um, and so probably um, that's what that's part of his M.O. That's important because when you're in that task force and you're trying to figure out who it is, you're not you're, you're not just figuring there. He's going to go after a mother three who's a soccer mom. At, you know, coming home from 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 uh, taking her kids to the park to watch a game or something like that, or a little girl who's walking home from a school, like a little uh, elementary school aged kid. No, he's going after specific target audience, and he's going right after them. You that you have to keep that in mind. And I'm I'm sorry the public does feel that there we're we're making a big deal of it or we're using it in a disrespectful manner. Not at all. Not at all it's important to know who the uh, to, to target who this person is targeting that's all it is uh rachel wyatt thank you for your comment he targeted sex workers because they are the most vulnerable and easy access to a man like him okay. he is not a guy that could attract women easily rachel you're so correct and thank you for basically reiterating and, and supporting what we had just said because there's folks that perhaps, you know, think that it's so uh, what do you have to say that they're sex workers because it's an important component of, of this investigation. And as they continue in this investigation, surely they're going to look for more of the same, of that type, that, that that was his MO. And MO is an important component of this type of investigation. Uh, during yesterday's hearing, Nicholas Santa Martino, an assistant district attorney, told the court that prosecutors had given Mr. Ewerman's lawyer only the first portion of evidence. Uh, the accused man in court nodded as Mr. Santa Martino continued. The prosecutor said there were the autopsy reports of Amberlynn Costello, Melissa Bartolome, Megan Waterman, and three of the 11 bodies discovered along a stretch between 2010 and 2011. There were also details about genetic material that authorities had collected and tested, as well as the video of the crime scenes in Mr. Ewerman's office, his storage unit, and his home in Massapequa. Uh, Mr. Ewerman was charged last month with three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of second-degree murder in the deaths of Ms. Costello, Ms. Bartolome, and Ms. Waterman. He has pled not guilty to all those charges. He was not yet charged with the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes, although the district attorney, uh, Ray Tierney, said that they believed that those charges will be forthcoming. He couldn't give a time frame on that, but clearly Rex Schumann is a suspect in the case of uh, Maureen Brainerd Barnes. And when they have enough evidence to bring the indictment down for that case, I believe they will do so. Mike? Yeah, Billy, yes. From what I know there, uh, the uh, grand jury that indicted Rex Sherman is still sitting and they're still hearing evidence. So um, this is a long term ongoing investigation. That task force is going to stay until the job is done. It might stay together for another year. We don't know. But the grand jury, too, is sitting for a long time 
and they're going to be continuing to investigate, hearing evidence. And if they feel this probable cause to charge uh, him, uh, Herman, with that fourth murder, they will absolutely do that. And they will do that as quick as they can. But it might take uh, months to get back, you know, any other evidence that they need. What little bit of evidence or what they think they're lacking, because there are times and, you know, as a as a homicide detective and as a sergeant, your detectives might feel that you've got enough to make an arrest in a case. But a district attorney might say no. Looking forward to the time when they're going to present that case in court, they want a little bit more evidence. So even if they're they know you could make the arrest, they may hold off and say, get some more, do a little bit more, get another witness, get, you know, nail it down you know, until we got no absolute uncertainties left. It's got to be unequivocal before we move to court. And that's what I think is happening here. The district attorney, uh, Tierney, is go is being very careful, dotting every I, crossing every T. And when he charges, uh, if and when he charges a human with that fourth homicide, uh, he'll know he not only does he have probable cause, but he has enough in his mind to take it to a conviction in court. So everyone, everyone, uh, just you know, patience on that case because that, that one will might take months. You know, Mike, one hundred percent. Cops always want, detectives always want. We got enough. Let's arrest them. Right. And a district attorney would be like, "Slow down. Mm -hmm. I want you to do this, 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 and this. Once you do that, those four things, five things, then we'll decide if we're ready to pull the trigger on the arrest." So. Yeah, there's two different points of view because, after all, the detective has to make the arrest, but then they also have to raise the right hand and testify in court. But the district attorney or the, the prosecuting ADA, uh, they not only have to okay the arrest, but they have to prosecute the case. Two different things, one based on probable cause, one based on beyond a reasonable doubt that they have to defeat, like convict, without beyond a reasonable doubt. A reasonable 12 jurors there, they have to convince them that this is the guy that did these horrific crimes. And again, beyond a reasonable doubt. And detectives, of course, they want to make the arrest. And they, you know, when the arrest is made, people have the false assumption, all right, now all the heavy lifting's over. No. It's not over. In fact, a lot of times it's just begun. There is a lot more work to do, especially on this case, for the fact that these cases began 13 years, maybe even 16 years ago. And we know Rex Ewerman is 59. So let's say it was 13 years ago. He would have been 56 when the, these murders uh, started. Do we really believe do experts, do forensic psychologists, do behavioral analysts really believe that he just started doing this at the age of 46? What did he do before that? What were some of the life events that may have made him stop for a bunch of years? Did he have a death in the family? Uh, did he get married? Did he have children? And we know he has adult children. I believe his daughter's 23. Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure of his son, maybe 25 or 26. So he has other things in his life. But these are the things that investigators will look at. They'll look at an exhaustive look at his travel. Where has he been? Where has he gone to? Has he traveled outside the country? We know he has a place down in South Carolina. Already they have cleared him of the Atlantic City Yes. Uh, serial murders. And I believe potentially maybe they have DNA that, again, didn't match his and it, and other information that cleared him from that. He's not a suspect in that anymore. But are there potentially other missing persons in other jurisdictions that we don't even know about yet that could potentially be part of Rex Ewerman's, you know, alleged sick, perverted life? You know, so there are there missing persons who haven't been discovered yet? Or are there missing persons that we just haven't connected to this man yet? All these are possibilities. And this is the exhaustive search. And detectives must go where the evidence leads them. And that's 
the facts of an investigation like this that is exhaustive. And again, it's cliche. We have to cross every T and dot every I. But that can't be more true than a case like this. Yeah, Bill, being given his age, like 59, and the fact that uh, he's, we believe he's killed at least uh, these three prostitutes, these three women over, uh, years ago. Um, I, I doubt that he probably started seeing prostitutes in his, in his 40s. I'm sure I would bet my paycheck that he's seen hundreds of prostitutes over the course of uh, several decades, and many of them he never even harmed. But I'm thinking in this case, as we've talked about it, looking at the M.O., it's possible he may have uh, seen these girls before, uh, gotten their trust, maybe pretend, you know, acted as the, the husband who wants to fool around behind his wife's back. She's on vacation with the kids, gotten their trust. Maybe he's met them at a motel, you know, that sort of thing. And then he come back again, get their trust, maybe bring them to his house, you know, that sort of thing, playing some sort of psychological game, getting on their uh, getting their trust. I would seriously doubt these are the only uh, girls that he's that he's killed. I would believe that it's probably more. And one of the things that you know, Billy, much more than I, and, and even Phil, is that there's not always going to be a, you're going to be able to pin a, a person a homicide on somebody because of the ravages of time and nature, and uh, what that does to the decomposing body. It's it's not going to give you all of the answers that you may need to pin it on someone to say that's the person that did it. We can take a look at all these records. Um, that's the difficulty in it. There's a lot of frustrations and you may hit a, a, a dead end and the coat and the case may go cold. And so that's always very frustrating. But I think Rex has done many misdeeds uh, over the course of the last 30 years. Um, and uh Unfortunately, we may never know the true extent. We might this might be just the tip of the iceberg, or it might be some total. But I don't think it's a sum total. I think it's the tip of the iceberg. The hard part is there's going to be uh, girls found, in, uh, and there's no, there won't be any possible uh, scientific way to connect him to this crime, and we're going to have to accept that. Absolutely, I want to play a little of this from the uh, court TV. From 24 year old Shannon Gilbert an escort who was at a house on Long Island. After that call, Shannon went missing. And when investigators began to search for Shannon, they discovered much more. Four victims on Gilgo Beach, all working as escorts. Then six more bodies, some of them dismembered, found close by on the same stretch of beach. Then a year after the first victim was found, Shannon Gilbert's body was finally recovered. The investigation for the killer was a search for a serial killer. But that investigation was delayed and obstructed by corruption in the police force, by the chief himself, who had his own legal issues connected to escorts. Then in 2023, a new task force was put together and the case was solved within months. Her chairman is a dean that walks among us. If not for the members of this task force, he would still be on the streets today. Tonight, we are live from the courthouse in Suffolk County, New York, as the accused murderer makes an appearance in court we have all the details as our in-depth coverage of the Long Island serial killer case continues. I'm Bay Politan. Thank you so much for joining us tonight here on Closing Arguments. And make no mistake, the arrest of the accused Long Island serial killer was big. It was important. It was significant. Think about everything that happened before that. 13 years of not knowing, not being able to solve a case. On the one hand, the public. You've got a serial killer out there. Where is he? Who is he? Is he striking again? How many more victims are there because it took 13 years? But now he's in custody. Big, big moment for all the victims' families, for law enforcement, for the community at large to have him in cuffs behind bars, charged in this case. 
But that's just step one. Those of you who watch the show, watch the network, you understand this, this process. They always say the wheels of justice turn slowly. Well, for 13 years, they were going really slow trying to solve the case. Uh, things. You know, Mike, so much has been said about uh, the mistakes made in this case. And yes, we, ha we have to acknowledge that there were yeah. huge mistakes made in this case. 13 years might have this case been solved earlier had they appointed someone like um, Rodney Harrison much earlier, uh, bringing the um, sort of the, the New York City know-how to, the, um, to, the, to this case. And it seems to me that establishing that task force was, was the catalyst that put this case really on the fast track. And look, we, we've uh, enumerated, we spoke about it. We had a real sort of a, uh, a little argument sort of show when we had Melanie Little on and we, uh, she was really a little bit upset about the fact that the information about the Chevy Avalanche and this large man visiting Amber Costello and him being identified. And somehow that information got lost somewhere in the case folder and it wasn't revealed till 13 years later. So what we would, what a lot of people would ask is, well, what if he now, we it turns out that he did kill other people. Wasn't that a a ridiculously huge mistake to have made? How could that have been overlooked? And look, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't have the inside information on this, but anyone that looks at this case, that's a glaring mistake. And I don't think anyone could ignore it. And then when you you add to that, Chief Burke, the Suffolk County chief who was at one time in charge of this case, who refused to bring the FBI in. It stinks. It does. It absolutely does. Your thoughts, Mike? Billy, yes, it does. It does stink. And we've talked about this. I think Bobby Chacon uh, last week had a great comment on it. He says, uh, at the time, you know, there may be a culture of, well, we're small, sleepy, you know, uh, county out here on the eastern part of Long Island. We, You know, things are quiet out here. Uh, they get these four uh, girls, they find their bodies in the dune, and they don't know what to do because they don't, they're not like the NYPD. They don't have a history of experience with this sort of thing. You know, the NYPD, this is their detectives. They're the best in the world. This is their stock and trade. They can do this sort of stuff. And they may not have had a really competent uh, squad of detectives and supervisors to understand how to go about this kind of case, you know, because this is huge. You have four bodies in one stretch of beach um, and especially four really close to each other. Um, you know, you got a serial killer. Nobody has to tell you that. And you need to bring in outside help that have the expertise, technical expertise, uh, county, I'm sorry, state or, or the FBI. And unfortunately, the police commissioner, Burke, uh, for whatever reason, didn't want to pull the trigger on that. Again, maybe it was due to uh, gross incompetence, or maybe it was due to the fact that he didn't want the FBI snooping around and asking questions and state police snooping around asking questions of call girls. Perhaps that's what he was afraid of. Um, I don't think in any way, shape or form, obviously, he knew Rex Hurman. He knew who the killer was. He was trying to protect Rex Hurman and protect himself in any way. No, I, I think it's you know, gross incompetence, idiocy. And, uh, and that's, and that's sad. And I hope to God that there was not any further homicides after, uh, those decisions not to bring in the FBI, not to bring in the state police, you know, when those decisions were made. Absolutely. You know, folks, one of the most important things is, and, and from any look, the police departments work in a hierarchy, hierarchical fashion, right? And the chief the, or the highest ranking boss on the police department is the one who makes the decisions. And you have to hope that the person in that position that's running a major investigation listens to the detectives. Because ultimately, the detectives in cases like these, 
are the most important component of this. And a chief or a boss that doesn't listen to his detectives and listen to what they found out, listen to the direction they want to go in, that boss isn't worth the dime's worth of shit. I'll tell you that right now. Because the detectives are the ones out in the field. The detectives are the ones that are talking to the people, interviewing people, talking to family members, out in the street, shaking the tree, like we like to say. And I think that maybe wasn't done 13 years ago, that the detectives perhaps weren't being listened to and it was being run from, you know, somewhere else. And the, the case was not, uh, well, it was not on the front burner of anyone's agenda, it seemed. And that's sad uh, in this case, because when this task force was put together, two months later, they had the information that led to the perpetrator in this. And look, there was nothing fast about it. They they had a name. Now they spent a year building a case against this name, surveilling this name, following this guy around, looking through over 300 subpoenas, search warrants, one-on-one -on -one surveillance. That's how, you know, everyone loves the pizza story. That's how they watch Rex Ewerman throw away that pizza box. And okay. from the discarded crust, they were able to surreptitiously, we love that word on police off the cuff, real crime stories. They were able to surreptitiously without a warrant because you don't need a warrant when someone throws something in the garbage. They were able to obtain it, swab the pizza crust for DNA from Rex Ewerman's saliva. They were able to get a sample an exemplar and compared it against a hair uh, that was lifted from one of the bodies and through mitochondrial DNA, they made a, mac a match to Rex Ullman. When they first found that out, were they ready right away to pull the trigger and make that arrest? I think a lot of things uh, pushed, pushed them to make that arrest. And one of them was the fact that Rex Ullman's behavior was of the type that they felt he was probably still, well, he was still reaching out to sex workers. That in itself was scary enough that what if he kills someone one, while we're watching? Do we have probable cause yet? Do we have enough yet to arrest him and put this case forward? Those are all the things that the bosses and the district attorney of Suffolk County had to put all their heads together, and hopefully they included the detectives' heads in on these meetings to make a decision on when to pull the trigger and when to make the arrest of Rex Ullman. Yeah, Billy, it was getting to be a, a very a critical juncture because you've got that DNA analysis that that hooks him up to the homicides with the pizza crust. Um, that occurred like six months ago. They got all that information. They know he's uh, checking out uh, porn, violent, really violent porn websites. They know he's talking to sex workers. You know, they're surveilling him. As you said, that would be a nightmare if they were surveilling him and a homicide occurred while they were surveilling him. And remember, too, his some of his searches, a lot of a, a huge number of his searches were about the task force. That task force was publicly announced when it was formed that they were going to get the uh, and solve this problem. They're going to get this guy as fast as they could. And they were putting all their resources to it. I'm sure an alarm went off in his head and he was searching constantly. And all you need, just think about it, you know how the press can be. You know, they might print up a story that may say something like, you know, a detective leaked some information that they, that they are ready to make an arrest any day now. The public should be happy about this. There's great new developments. You just get one story like that. Human is going to stop doing what he's doing. And if he was lucky enough not to have been spotted or, or identified at that point. He may have avoided capture or avoided detection for a long time. But uh, yeah, he was looking and he was hoping and praying that his self, his burner phones and all things like that, all the technology associated with that would shield him from detection. But absolutely, there came that juncture and they had to say, go or sit back a little bit more. I think they made the best choice. Go now get him. He's, it's going to be a surprise. You, you may wait another week or two or a month or two. And if one small little story leaks out or something like that, 
uh, it's it's over. And especially, just think about it. Uh, what happens if he contacts a, a prostitute who's maybe been interviewed by by uh, someone associated with that task force? That's going to spoil the surprise. He's going to go underground. You don't know what's going to happen next. I'm glad they did it when they did it. And uh, they may have saved someone's life by doing it now rather than later. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, ring that bell, and give us a thumbs up. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels, and our fans, our subscribers, and our friends are part of our YouTube family. You know, I just wanted to also mention something, and this goes hand in hand with what we talk about all the time. One of the reasons that the police keep things close to the vest, as we like to say in these investigations, is proven by this case. This guy was monitoring the police. What we would call that, we would call that countermeasures or counter surveillance. He's studying what the police are doing. I'll tell a quick funny story. There was a serial killer in the cells, I won't say the precinct, in Manhattan North. And the detectives were talking about the case in which he was the killer in this case. He was listening as to what they had on this case. Again, we know as cops we shouldn't do that, but we all make mistakes. What was the chance that the serial killer was in the cell who they were talking about? It turned out he was arrested and charged, and he's doing life in prison now. But just that whole thing of why, and Rex Schuerman's a very good example of why you keep things close to the vest. He was doing what is known as countermeasures and studying what the police were doing. What were their techniques? How close were they to finding him? And well, I use a geryism, consciousness of guilt. He was using burner phones because he was premeditated. He was trying to prevent from getting caught. So all these things are great reasons why the police cannot always tell the public or the press, and we know the press always wants to know what's going on. They can't always be transparent. And if anything, I believe in this case, they're telling the press a little bit too much. Uh, that's my opinion. And um, also, I've never seen a case in my police career where the district attorney is the spokesperson. It's always been the police, at least in the NYPD. I've never seen the district attorney giving press conferences every other day. I, I've never seen that. And um, I just, I question why. Uh, your, your thoughts, Mike? Yeah, Billy, um, We the cops need to uh, play everything close to the vest. Just think about the Koberger case and Chief Fry out in you out in um you know idaho. idaho he was sitting there and he wanted to say a lot and he was being raked over the coals people were you know insinuating that they're like a little mayberry rfd department that doesn't know what the hell they're doing they're way out of their league and that guy had to sit there and take it and he sat there and i would not want to play poker with that man because he could you don't know he could bluff you and you're going to lose your shirt but uh he did what he had to do and he took the heat and uh, everyone was surprised, but he did it the right way. And I think you got to, you got to be that way. And the public may complain, editors may complain, reporters may complain, new, you know, news outlets may complain, but you have to do that because we've seen the crazy uh, rumors that have circulated about, you know, the Murdoch case, the Koberger case, you know, and, and this case, and uh, it's horrible. And I think when it comes to the press conferences, they should be short and sweet, a prepared statement that's gone over by someone who's uh, really experienced in public speaking and public communication should go over it with fine tooth comb, edit it out a few things and just to, to have them read it or have someone from the, from the PD read it or someone from the district attorney's office read it. Um, I know Tierney's very, very proud of the work that his uh, team has done with, with, uh, with Chief Harrison, um, and he wants to, you know, shout it out to say, look, you know, we, we did this, but it's counterproductive. And um, he may say something, slip of the tongue, say something that's 
not true or it's an exaggeration or, or whatever happens to be just give away a little something that he may not have needed to give away at that time because he feels like he, he should he wants to let the public know out in Suffolk County. Hey, look, we got this done, but I don't think it's a good idea. It should be short and sweet. You're 100 percent right, Mike. Let me play a little bit more of this from Court TV. Police. Yeah, there's somebody after me. I'm sorry? There's somebody after me. Where are you? There's somebody after me. Okay, where are you? There's somebody after me. Where are you, ma'am? I don't know. No, stop it, please. Stop it, please. Please, stop it. Please, stop it. No, please, stop it. So that's Shannon Gilbert. Don't forget, it was the search for her that began this entire case. There she is making a call early morning hours of May 1st, 2010. She's, uh, you know, an escort on Craigslist, got called um, to someone's house out in Oak Beach. Joseph Brewer is his name. Michael Pack is her driver. Let's take a listen to part two of that phone call now. Shannon. So Shannon ran down the street on foot from 8 Fairway Drive to 17 Fairway Drive, again in Oak Beach, uh, to Gus Coletti's house. Gus answered the door, spoke to Shannon, then Shannon ran off to another home, and then he called 911. Gus did to report what he had seen. Take a listen. Yes, this, uh, I live at Oak Beach in the Association. There's a young girl about 14 years old running around here screaming, and there's some guy trying to follow her. What's the address, Dale? I'm at 17 The Fairway. All right. You have a description of the girl or the boy? Pardon me? You have a description of the girl or the boy? The girl is about 14 years old, got blonde hair, very small. The boy, I can't tell. He was into, like, a, a, a suburban. What color? Uh... Black. Very small, like the other victims. Let's bring back in our. You know, uh, Mike, with this um, incident, they initially listed her death as accidental, which was sort of hard to believe that. Well, she was seeing a client in Gilgo Beach. They had the address, they had the name. He's been interviewed uh, numerous, numerous times. But initially, they had a theory that she fell down in the water and drowned, which I yes. thought was a little bit ridiculous. And then I believe former New York City chief medical examiner, Michael Bodden, did a second autopsy and found that the hyoid bone was broken, which is indicative of death by strangulation, asphyxia. And that was uh, on a second autopsy. So... What was re what was that all about? Why did they not find that in the initial autopsy? Uh, Lou Lemaraco, thank you so much for the $20 super sticker. The suspect's attorney all over the media yesterday already stating this will be tried in court, not in the media. Thank you, Lou. Very much appreciated. You know what's interesting? The attorney uh, for uh, Rex Uerman, his last name is Brown, and he's an 18B attorney. Mm -hmm. That is... 18B are attorneys that are private attorneys, but put their name on to be hired uh, by indigent clients. Now, it's it's amazing that Rex Hewerman had this, owned his own company, seemed like he owned some real estate. He was deep, deep in tax trouble, owed uh, anywhere from $200,000 to $250,000 in back taxes. Mm -hmm. 
yet now he's indigent and is getting an 18B attorney. What are your thoughts on that? Billy, I think Mr. Brown's got his work cut out for him. He's he's got he's got a the most high profile client he may ever ever represent, but he's also got a client who um, you know has absolutely no resources officially, and uh, he's and uh, and I think 18B attorneys uh, personally I think they're they're great because they put their name they may do other sort of practice but they want to get into criminal defense and they apply and they get on the panel but. Um, you know, it's he's got he's got an uphill battle here with uh, Hurman because um, of all of the you know cell phone evidence, DNA evidence, things like that. But uh, and he's going to have to do what he's been doing before. You know, we, we're looking forward to you know uh, exoneration in court. We look forward to our day in court. We really want to get this speedy trial. Uh, he told me, I think I think uh, Defense Attorney Brown said to the media when I spoke to him, Rex denied this, and he said to me, I didn't do it. You know, that's what a defense attorney does. And, um, and and that's what they have to do. That's what he is ethically obligated to do. Uh, I, I've no doubt that he is is very competent. And um, I hope he's this isn't his first criminal case. I'm sure. He's Mike, can, Mike, can I just interrupt you for yeah. one second? People in the chat want to know. It appeared that Rex Ewerman had money. Why right. is he? Why are the taxpayers now paying for his defense? Now, well, I'll just say what I know. They're not going to just assign someone an 18B attorney or legal aid unless they do an investigation. They do an investigation, they found, wait a minute, this guy's got no money. Potentially, could they make him put up his house? I don't know if they could, because um, he probably filed some sort of like, what they call informa pauperis, means admitting that you're poor and that you need uh, help from the state and that you can't really afford to hire an attorney. He may have have uh, have some sort of, his wages garnished by the state. You never know. He might have attachment to a liens on his house. Um, he may not actually have more than um, a couple thousand dollars in the bank to rub, you know, to uh, to do any sort of uh, as resources. So um, I'm not sure if if he is ever found to be that he's got say three hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Can he? Uh, can they attach his house? I think somewhere along the line. The county is going to uh, seize the property, sell it, and get all their tax money. And whatever's left over, if there is money left over, it'll go to um, his his former wife or something like that. But uh, I'm not sure if they would attach his house right now, sell it, and 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 get the money in their pocket. I really don't know. that might be something for much later on. But um, he must be in pretty dire straits not to be able to hire. Uh, an attorney. And and I think he'd probably need about, at this point, he probably would need about $100,000 liquid right now to be able to hire um, uh, a top tier defense attorney. You know, a lot has been said, a lot has been made of the fact that the police did search warrants at his house. They were there for 12 or 13 days. They basically destroyed the house. And I don't know what the house looked like before they got in there. Because I've done search warrants where people said we destroyed their house. And I said, you should have saw it before we got there. It was worse, you know. What we did actually made it look better. But anyway, the in this case, you know, explain to the audience, the police do the search warrants. They do not clean up afterwards. Uh, they do not call, you know, uh, the local cleaning service. They do not call contractors for damages that they may have done to the house inside in searching for potential evidence against a serial killer. You may find that harsh. You may find that, but there is the, the, the heirs, his wife. Now what she must do is sue the police department. Yeah, Billy, uh, uh, yeah, the public doesn't understand it, but the police are not gentle when they're going through your car, they're going through your garage, they're going through your house, your living room, your dining room, your basement, they're going through your storage unit, uh, your boat, whatever it happens to be. They are looking for, especially in this case, they're looking for uh, DNA evidence, hairs, fibers, things like that, um, cell phones, uh, anything they could find. They're going to rip up the carpet. They're going to go through the drawers. They're going to pull out all the drawers. They're going to you know, take that desk, shake it upside down and make sure there's nothing hidden in the desk. They're going to go through all of the, the cabinets. They're going to go through the refrigerator. They're going through the freezer. They're going to go in the shed outside where you keep your lawnmower, you know, and a bicycle. They're going to go through that. And 
they don't have a duty uh, to put it all back nice and neat. Um, you know, that's just that's just the way it goes. And uh, there, there, the the poor, the poor uh, lady, uh, Ms. Um, her first name is Ella Asa Elrup. She's going to have to do the best she can for her family at this point and uh, put it all back together as best they can or would, or do something else with it. But um, she will have to file a notice of claim against the county and and the uh, Suffolk County Police Department and, and sue them in court. And uh, hopefully she'll get back some amount of money. It'll be a negotiated sort of settlement, you know, 50,000, 25,000, 100,000, whatever it is. And she'll have to try to put that towards putting her life back in order, fixing that house up. They, they ripped out, I think, a tub. Uh, they broke through a wall to get to the tub drain. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a nightmare because they go in there like gangbusters. I've done it myself up as a sergeant in up in the three Oh, you know, just not being very gentle, not thinking about the consequences, just thinking about what we're looking for. Where can we find what we're looking for? Oh, it could be there. Let's tear that apart. Um, unfortunately that's, that's just the way it is. Absolutely. You know, Mike, I wanted to mention another thing. We spoke about, and Rodney Harrison, the police commissioner of Suffolk County, said in no way does he believe the family knew anything about Rex Ewerman's right. second life. However, I would argue that his first life wasn't so good. Uh, I mean, look at the house. And I, people will get mad at me, say, oh, you have no right to. Yeah, I, I am criticizing the house. Your house is indicative of who you are and how you go about your life. And apparently, from what the police said, when they entered it, they used the word cluttered. When cops use the word cluttered, believe me, it's a absolute pigsty, all right? Because they use that word cluttered. So were they, was there some, even within the family, acceptance of his, uh, he had to have had apparent behavior at home. He wasn't doing his, I, I don't believe this. I think... There are signs and not necessarily say, oh, because he doesn't clean his house or maintain his house. He's a serial killer. No, I don't mean that. I just means there were there are signs. Perhaps he was abusive to his wife, abusive to his kids, uh, didn't spend a lot of time with his family. That's just my opinion. What are your thoughts? Yeah, Billy, he, he does, from what you you read, what you see uh, on, on the networks and what you know, we, we know about our own experiences with, with these kind of people. Um, he probably was a bully. He was bullied when he was a kid. Um, he was probably, he liked, he was probably was a bully because he wanted to be in control, get back at people. He probably bullied his wife for many, many years. It probably was not a happy relationship, even with his children. Remember, that was his home, the home that he grew up in. He bought it from his mother, like maybe 20 years ago. Um, it's not something that he and his wife you know, bought like you and your spouse or me and my spouse would buy together. You settle on it. You fix it up together. That was his home. It wasn't her home. That was his home. He did whatever he wanted in that home. And his word was law. And I'm sure he bullied them. They accepted probably. I'm, I think that his wife probably knew on some levels that he was probably visiting prostitutes or things like that. Uh, I, I, I'm sure. But killing as a whole different story. But I think they knew that his he was he had a whole other life, and they didn't dare tread on that or ask questions. I don't think he's the kind of guy that would broker any sort of discussions about his life. And um, that's sad because I think his children and his wife lived in some level of fear of him. Wilesy Pony, uh, a channel member for thirteen months. Uh, months. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Why couldn't Shannon Gilbert's cell phone be tracked? Wilesy, we it was tracked. They know where she was going. She was going to see a John. They have the John. They've spoken to the John. She knocked on numerous do uh, doors as she was running away. They interviewed all those people. I don't know what happened to her cell phone after that. Did it disappear into the marshes there? Did it go cold? But... They had a lot of leads on this. That's why there are many people uh, that don't believe 
Rex Human uh, is responsible for the death of Shannon Gilbert because she was live on the air. We heard her cell phone calls. I don't know exactly enough because, again, you need the, the actual case folder. Who did the detective speak to? She had a limousine driver on the site that brought her there. So they had a lot of information about her, yet she was lost for, I think, 13 months. They didn't find her. They found her after they found the other four bodies. So I can't uh, totally, I can't totally explain. They did track her right back to where she went. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, Billy, um, it seemed like when you listen to that 911 call and the desperation of the voice, it seemed like she thought that 911 could actually track her phone in real time and give like an exact location. You know, as when you take your phone and you're, you're, you're map questing or whatever, and you're walking around the city or you're driving, it can show you exactly where you are. I think she thought there was some sort of ability like that, that she could say, I'm, you know, just, just look at my phone, you know, figure it out on a map and you follow me because it was late at night. She wasn't exactly sure of the location where she was at. She knew she, where she was supposed to be going, but she didn't know really how close she was. Uh, yeah, it's then who knows what the exact technology was at that time when she disappeared. Um, but uh, you're right. She, the police actually did an, an excellent job of figuring out where she was, you know, a while later because they interviewed everyone, uh, the limousine driver, the, the John, the, the, you've got the gentleman who called after she was rapping on his do front door, you know, that sort of thing. You got his phone call. Yeah, I don't think it's a Rex Sherman case either because it just doesn't fit. But um, yeah, she she may have thought that, yeah, I, you must know where I am. I'm on my cell phone. I'm speaking to 911. You must know where I am. Like 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 there's a little radar ping on, on the street. And unfortunately, you know, we, Mike, I could say that I've chased cell phones that were up that we were up on. And it would be like 10 or 15 minute gaps. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's now on the Grand Concourse. Oh, okay. Where, what address? And only when the person stopped at a location, and actually this person will tell you where they stopped. He was wanted for a murder. He stopped at the Dallas Barbecue right off the Deegan there in the Bronx. It's not there anymore. Okay. Now it's a, it's a club, but okay. it's right off the Deegan. And he went in there and he said, he's at such and such a location. And sure enough, we watched him walk out of there with a bag of chicken and he was there with his girlfriend and we took him down right outside of the restaurant Dallas Barbecue. But not until the person with the cell phone stopped and then it constantly pinged at, the, at a, a location were we able to target. I think that the technology, re-cell phones is probably so much better now that they can pick you right out of your bed. In fact, they used to have that, uh, uh, Taru used to have a like a, a radar type device uh, that they would take you right to the apartment. Oh, the, the phone's in here. And it was pretty, pretty amazing. But uh, I don't know. They're probably even more advanced now than, than they were back then. I want to play a little bit of this, Mike, and uh, from again, Court TV. Kids, it's the all American look, right? But there's this dark side that he has how did he have all of these hidden deviancies that no one had discovered in all of these years and he was able to just keep that completely on the side and now we see these horrific internet searches and all of the things that are actually part of the evidence and how was he able to hide that for so long and was there at some point a, a form of escalation or maybe a rapid unraveling of his mental state that people didn't catch and if they can track him they can definitely find out that he didn't start in his late 40s, that he may have started in his 30s or in his 20s, depending on where he went to college, depending on where he was living, if he's living in an apartment, all those things they look into, if they're actually going to get to the bottom of all the individuals he may have killed. Of course, they're all talking about the accused Long Island serial killer scheduled to be in court early next week. Court TV legal correspondent Julie Janae has more tonight. To announce uh, the indictment of defendant Rex Andrew Hureman, 59 years of age, uh, and he's been arrested by the Suffolk County uh, Police Department's homicide detectives, and he's been indicted for the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. 
On July 13, 2023, architect Rex Hereman was arrested in connection with three of the Gilgal Beach murders and remains a prime suspect in the killing of Maureen Bernard Barnes. For more than a decade, the bodies unearthed on Gilgal Beach in New York terrified residents. Nine women, a man, and a toddler were discovered, and police believe Hereman is connected to four. Rex Hereman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. During a training exercise on December 11th, 2010, the remains of Melissa Bartholomew were discovered. Two days later, the remains of Maureen, Megan, and Amber were all found. All four victims were petite females, believed to be sex workers, missing clothes, and bound in a similar fashion. They were killed by homicide. Before their disappearance, they had been contacted by a person using a burner phone. For each of the murders, he got an individual burner phone and he used that to communicate with the victims. Uh, and then shortly after uh, the death of the victims, uh, he then would, uh, would get rid of the burner phone. According to the phone records, investigators believed the serial killer lived in Massapequa Park and worked in Midtown Manhattan near Penn Station. They discovered Hereman had access to several burner phones and the calls were made inside what police called the box. Their suspect would also make sadistic calls near his office to the victim's families with one particular call asking Bartholomew's teenage sister, quote, do you think you'll ever speak to her again? They had these phone records from day one. As you mentioned, they had the, the description of the guy, the car. They had all the information they needed. A key detail in the investigation would be buried for years as a police chief was arrested for obstruction of justice. But in March of 2022, weeks after a new task force formed, an investigator found a witness description of a man matching Hureman's characteristics at Amber Costello's home. That individual was identified as, as a person who was between 6'4 and 6'6, uh, a, a large man also of significance was the fact that he was driving a dark colored black first generation uh, Chevrolet Avalanche. Investigators would later find Hereman's Chevy Avalanche in South Carolina. One of the things that we did is we followed him because we wanted to get an abandonment sample of his DNA. Investigators collected Hereman's DNA from a discarded pizza crust and linked him to a hair found on a burlap covering Megan Waterman's remains. The investigation continues with the search of Hereman's home and the possibility of other murder charges. He claims he is innocent and has an attorney who says he did not commit these murders. In terms of speaking to my client, the only thing I can tell you that he did say uh, as he was in tears was, I didn't do this. So what is... So there's a sort of a uh, short uh, recap on it. Uh, you know, there's so much to this case, and there's so much more to be done in regards to this case. And that's why this task force was is and was so important and will continue to be important. Mike, let me go to a quick commercial. Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in the New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Uh, Joe Murray is a retired NYPD police officer and a fantastic defense attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. Or go on his website, jmurray-law.com. Joe Murray is also a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast. So, Mike, basically, we covered a lot of this today. Uh, what If we want our listeners, our subscribers, our fans, our friends to take anything away from this today, it's that this case is by no means anywhere close to being over with. I would, you know, many people we've spoken to, Dr. Joni Johnston, other people that are experts in uh, forensic psychology, they all believe that he's done this before and didn't start at the age of 46. So that will be the job of investigators to uncover this, to potentially uncover more victims. And how do you do that? How do you do that? You do that. One of the ways you do that is all the evidence they collected from the house 
voluminous. They have to photograph that, catalog it, make a computer database of the, everything they took in that they considered to be evidence. And then guess what? If there's potentially trophies among some of the things they recovered, let the public see it. Definitely. This is where you use the press. You show on a TV show or broadcasting, this is what was recovered. If anyone recognizes this as belonging to a loved one, perhaps, who is missing, please contact the Suffolk County Police. That's one way. That sounds, oh, that's so antiquated. But that works, believe it or not, because TV and the broadcast uh, industry, they have access to millions of people. They put something like that out, and that's how you shake the tree. That's what it's called. Of course, regular gumshoe work. Get out into the community. Talk to people. And again, some of the stuff that you do as an investigator is follow the money. Let's see where he was spending his money, all right? Of course, his cell phone, his computer, all of those things they already have. So they're doing all these things that I suggest. And hopefully through all of this, through all this investigative work, the investigative techniques, they'll come up with some of the information that they need to bring closure and to prove these cases for the families of these victims that were uh, tragically murdered by this, you know, as Police Commissioner Rodney says, this monster. Uh, again, he's innocent to proven guilty monster. But uh, if he did do this, he, in fact, is a monster. And, you know, you could even call him a monster based on some of the search uh, information that was found on his computer. A normal person doesn't search child porn sites or have child porn on their computer. So, yes, I'll stand by that word monster, you know. We'll call him an alleged monster, but he is a monster, you know. And I always like to say near the end of the show, this case, of course, like every homicide case, is about the victims. And these victims, no matter what they did with their lives, they're real people and real human beings. They loved and they walked this earth, and they have families that love them. So we always want to remember Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartelome, Anne Boleyn Costello, and Megan Waterman, and the other victims who Rex Uerman have not, has not been connected to yet, but the other victims that hopefully we can also bring closure to them and to their families. Mike, your final words. Billy, the uh, task force's great work and the arrest and of, of uh, Uerman and his appearance in court these last these two appearances it's not the beginning of the end whatsoever he has so many issues and problems to deal with and maybe even now federal crimes to deal with relating to um child porn this isn't the beginning of the end this is the end only the end of the beginning it's going to go on for a long time and i just hope everyone has the patience and understanding that you know this is going to go on for quite a while and hopefully we'll solve as many missing girl cases uh, as we possibly can. And he spends, if he is guilty, he spends the rest of his life in prison. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, with my compadre, Professor Mike Geary, retired NYPD sergeant. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And when we get new information on this case or information that we think is worth bringing to you, We'll surely do that. Have a great day, everyone, and God bless. God bless. One episode, just ain't enough.